Welcome to the 362nd of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome medical students Mayank Jairam and Mina Weibrecht to the program. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. As always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, October 21st, 2021, there are 4,921,419 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is Medical Students Cope with Personal Loss from COVID-19. This was written by Bridget Balch and appeared April 27, 2021 on the website of the Association of American Medical Colleges, aamc.org. Ryan Mahoney's last conversation with his father happened over FaceTime. James Charlie Mahoney, MD, speaking from his hospital bed, asked his youngest son about the NFL draft and teased him about their rival teams, the New York Jets and the Giants. It was such a me and him conversation, Ryan recalls. I'm Ryan that a second year medical student at Rutgers New Jersey Medical School in Newark was supposed to be studying for the United States Medical Licensing Examination step one, which kept getting postponed because of the COVID-19 pandemic, but he couldn't focus. Dr. Mahoney, a physician in pulmonary and critical care at University Hospital of Brooklyn, with more than three decades of experience, had spent the past several weeks on the front lines of the first desperate wave of the pandemic in New York. He'd sent Ryan photos of himself decked out in personal protective equipment as he treated some of the first COVID patients in the city. And suddenly, he was one of those patients. Ryan wasn't allowed to visit him as the hospital enforced strict visitor restrictions to limit spread of the virus. So their communication was limited to FaceTime. Dr. Mahoney gave little indication of the severity of his illness, although he must have known it was dire after he insisted on seeing his own chest X-ray. Shortly after his last conversation with Ryan, Dr. Mahoney was intubated. He died a few days later on April 27, 2020. Over the past year, Ryan has found some comfort in immersing himself in his studies and clinical work. He had chosen to follow in his father's footsteps by attending medical school, and the outpouring of support from his father's patients motivated Ryan to keep working hard. There are always trainees and students who lose a loved one during medical training. That's a difficult time in life, but especially when you're busy, very busy in medical school, says Amit Shah, MD, Associate Dean for Student Affairs at the Phoenix campus of Mayo Clinic, Alex School of Medicine. COVID has dramatically increased the pace of these losses, he said. I can't think of an institution that has been unscathed. 
an assistant dean for student affairs at Texas Christian University and University of North Texas Health Science Center School of Medicine in Fort Worth, Danica Franks, MD, has had to be strong, not just for her students, but also for her family. Last September, the emergency medicine physician lost her 93-year-old grandfather, James Morris Taylor Sr., to COVID-19. As the only doctor in her family, Franks struggled with trying to ensure her grandfather was getting the best care possible in Alabama, while also continuing her work and parenting her three young children in Texas. It was hard to make sure the doctors knew him as a person, not just a patient, she explains. As a physician, I'm intimately aware that having family or loved ones in the room to advocate on your behalf humanizes you. Franks would tell the nursing staff personal details about her grandfather to help them connect with him, like how he was most motivated by orange soda and that he, a black man, had once stood guard outside of a home where Martin Luther King Jr. was staying to protect him as he worked for civil rights. She would coordinate frequent calls with her extended family to translate the scary and complex medical terminology. After more than two months battling COVID-19, Mr. Taylor succumbed to his illness. It was devastating, Franks said. The patriarch of our family died alone, with nobody holding his hand and us trying to let him know through an iPad that we love him. Although Franks feels fortunate that her family was able to plan a small memorial, she hasn't yet let the reality of the loss hit her as she has poured her energy into her students. I work with our medical students very closely. I think it's been an enormously high calling, she notes. It's been so much all hands on deck. Dr. Franks' own experience also reminds her about the importance of changing the culture in the medical field surrounding mental health and well-being. Even before the pandemic, medical students experienced symptoms of depression and suicidal ideation at disproportionately high rates compared to their peers outside of medical training. The pressure, exhaustion, and burnout has intensified during the pandemic when learners have experienced disruption to their training and often seen the toll of COVID-19 firsthand in the hospitals while also navigating the pandemic's impact on their personal lives. What we've tried to do is to really promote a cultural change within the institution, a sensitivity to the reality that people who work in healthcare were all human beings, says John Kennedy Jr., MD, Senior Advisor and Director for Wellness at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, Department of Medicine. We're all susceptible to the same challenges that all human beings have. When Dr. Mahoney was laid to rest, the funeral service was limited to only close family members, but it was broadcast on Zoom. Ryan later watched a recording of the call and saw that for three hours, more than 200 people logged on and shared stories about the beloved New York doctor. Many of them were patients who said he'd saved their lives. It was amazing to see how many people he interacted with. He touched so many lives, Ryan says. He didn't come home and say, I saved 10 lives today. Students get jaded seeing illness and death. It's nothing to us, he says. But on the other side of the bed, this is your dad, your brother, your mom. This is somebody who's a huge part of your life. Understanding what it's like to be in that position, it's already forced me to be more patient and empathetic and care for my patients better. The article was Medical Students Cope with Personal Loss from COVID-19, written by Bridget Balch appearing on the website of the Association of American Medical Colleges.
Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today. Let me introduce my guests to you. Mina Weibrecht is a third-year medical student at the University of Michigan, pursuing a specialty in family medicine. She grew up in Taiwan and Michigan. Her, patients, her passions include translating between English and Mandarin, providing trauma-informed care, as well as addressing healthcare disparities. Outside of medicine, Mina is a dancer and a published poet, and you can find her work in places such as the Journal of Medical Humanities. Mayank Jairam is a third-year medical student at the University of Michigan with a BS degree in physiology from Michigan State University. Mayank is interested in general surgery and plans to pursue a career in academic medicine where he can mentor the next generation of learners while also striving to improve healthcare inequities. In his free time, Mayank enjoys archery, chess, and research. He's published articles in the Journal of the American Medical Association and Nature-affiliated journals. Noah Weibrecht and Mayank Jairam, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls today. Thanks so much, Scott. We're happy to be here. I have to say, just reading your, your bios and describing your, um, your hobbies, I, I wonder, I, I, I know how busy you must be, and I, I can't imagine. I feel like it, maybe it's aspirational you're putting those down. Do you actually have time to, to do hobbies, Mina? <laughs> well, it depends for sure. Um, actually, I thought my life was over, I guess, on second year of medical school, but somehow I've been able to incorporate a lot of my passions, like dance. Um, later on, we can chat about uh, me teaching a dance class, a bachata dance class to medical students, and that was how I was able to kind of engage in um, dance. And I did some poetry over the summer between first and second year. So there are pockets of time here and there. Mayak, you also you're finding some time to have a life outside of the clinic, outside of the classroom? Yeah, it, it all depends on like the specific part of medical school you're in. So there's sometimes like the first year we had a lot more free time and then second year was a little bit more busy in the clinic. And so it's a little bit less free time than I would like to give to my hobbies. Um, and then, you know, hobbies kind of change as well over time. So uh, there's not as much time to go out to the archery center and um, do some archery, but maybe a little bit more time to play some chess online. So mm. the hobbies also change with the time as well. Yeah, I mean, this is one thing I, I note among quite busy people, often they also find time, they structure their, their time very well. So maybe they find time to do things out, outside of work. It sounds like what you're both doing. Well, um, I'd like to, to um, start our conversation, I guess we've started, but continue the conversation um, by finding out where you're calling from and what the pandemic is looking like there. Mayank, let me ask you that question. Yeah, so we're both calling from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, we go to the University of Michigan Medical School right now. Um, and at least I can speak to the hospital right now and how many patients there have been admitted with COVID. Um, we get a weekly update from the hospital. Um, the most recent update we got a couple days ago. And there's around 50 patients that are positive for COVID in the hospital. Um, and there's around 40 adults and around 10 children who are, who are tested positive for COVID right now with around 13 of those people in the ICU. And in terms of reference for how that compares to how we've been throughout the pandemic, um, usually uh, at, the, at the peak of the pandemic, there were around 200 patients that were positive for COVID. Um, and then when the pandemic was a little bit less um, like busy, there was around 10 to 15 patients in the hospital that had that tested positive for COVID. So right now, 
we're not at the very extreme end of that, um, but we have been creeping up steadily. Um, the week before was around 40, and so the numbers have been getting a little bit higher in the last few weeks. And in terms of uh, Washtenaw County, which we're in right now, we had 141 new cases yesterday, and then overall in the state of Michigan, yesterday we had about 7,000 new cases. So the trend has been positive overall, but then you said creeping back up a little bit lately, I guess, because of seasonal changes. I mean, are you heading into another wave there? Is too soon to say. I think we are in another wave, if I'm correct. Um, I guess looking at the statistics, it's in, the rates are increasing by 1% as of last week, and it's slowly on an exponential trend. If you go on the streets of Ann Arbor, kind of, it doesn't really seem like we're in a pandemic. Not a lot of people are wearing masks. I would say more people don't wear masks than the people who do, unfortunately. So I've been asking guests if they wouldn't mind sharing a personal memory of, of this time, and that's pretty hard to do, but I'd like to ask you both the same, Mina. Let me start with you on that. Something that really sticks in your memory that defines this era for you. Absolutely. Um, I have a lot of memories with patients, but um, I have a memory with a family member who's basically like a mom to me. Um, this, when the pandemic first started, I was, well, the whole time really, I've been really worried because she has underlying lung disease, um, really severe asthma, and she had about a, um, a bout of pneumonia few Novembers ago. So I was really worried that if she caught COVID, um, her lungs wouldn't be able to make it. And I remember one day, I think maybe six months ago now, I got a call saying that she COVID and that she had to call her primary care provider. Um, they sent her to the emergency department and her oxygen saturations were in the 90s, but she was really, really struggling. But it wasn't low enough for them to admit her. Um, and they actually sent her home and then my uncle got it too. Um, yeah, so it, I was just that night, it was terrible for me. I remember crying myself to sleep and fortunately she made it out. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, I guess her voice changed, um, for a little bit and she really was struggling to breathe even when she was talking, but over time she has slowly recovered, which I'm really thankful for. It's really scary when someone you care about um, yeah, it gets COVID and you don't know what's going to happen. Uh, thank you for sharing that. She's recovered now? Yes, she is, fortunately. It's actually something I don't think we've talked enough about in this pandemic is anticipation. And mm -hmm. that people, particularly with underlying health concerns, they themselves, I've, I've read some you know, some people talk about this maybe in a glancing way. I think maybe because people are a little guarded if they haven't had it yet or if they've had it and recovered, they don't want too much attention on themselves. But that if you're already a person who might be predisposed, mm -hmm. that anticipation that you could get it any day is also a sort of health stress. And, and your description of your anticipation of the family member is really powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Mayank, same question to you. Yeah. I would say that one of my most striking memories from this whole COVID pandemic was a year ago uh, when we first started working in the hospital. And this is right when we were in the second wave of COVID. The hospital was basically full with patients who had COVID and there were really large restrictions on who could visit the patients in the hospital. 
Um, essentially, the rule at that time was that only one family member could visit a patient, and there was only like an eight to 12 hour window that they would be allowed to come in to visit the patient in the hospital. And at that time, all of the patients who came in, they had to be tested for COVID. Um, and if they were positive, they would go into isolation. Um, but if they weren't, then if they were negative, then they could have their visitor come and visit them. And there was a situation last year where we had several family members who would come in. And while all the hospitalists were in the room and the medical team was in the room, they would be wearing masks. But outside of the room, um, they would take their mask off and, and engage with a patient without their masks on. And so the challenge was, you know, we have a restriction on who is allowed to come into the hospital to see their loved ones in this um, pandemic. But then also because those people are coming in, you know, no one's monitoring them to see if they'll be wearing their masks or not. And so we actually ended up having an outbreak, mini outbreak in the hospital that week where one of the family members had come in and wasn't wearing a mask. And then the patient ended up getting COVID. Several members on the medical team got COVID and spread it to some other patients on the floor. And it was just a really heartbreaking situation. And it just shows how challenging it is in this pandemic to find that balance of like making sure that people in the hospital can have their loved ones and have support around them, while also trying to maintain safety for everyone else involved. I, I think, well, thank you for sharing that. And I think we, we will touch on some of those tensions as, as we go through the through the discussion today, that one you just identified, the desire to have family there as advocates, as supporters, as extensions of what's, you know, the doctors and nurses and support staff can do. But then all of a sudden now you're, but you've become a public health official for their own, for their behaviors as well. And, and I don't know, I mean, early on that what you're describing there, Mayank, is were we already in a time in which people were fighting mad about about masks where there already this sort of high level of tension at that point yeah it was a little bit after like the since it was after the first wave like starting early of the second wave a lot of people were feeling that covid was kind of going away and that it wasn't gonna come back again and that it wasn't going to be as bad as it was initially and so i think there was still a lot of hesitation around wearing a mask at that time um this was before the vaccine came out though so um at that point, there was still a lot of uncertainty. This makes me think about how, I, I guess, in the general public, going grocery stores, there is a lot of resistance on wearing masks. And I, I guess I hear stories about people and getting in fights. But at least for me personally, in the hospital, I haven't really had um, like negative experiences with people being unwilling to wear masks. Um, I think it was only one time I was in an outpatient setting. Someone asked if I could, they could remove their mask because they got the vaccination. And mm -hmm. I, I declined because I, I said there's, there's other diseases too going on, not just um, COVID. But fortunately, usually people are pretty compliant in the medical setting or perhaps the front desk people scream um, or, I guess, talk to people. And if they aren't wearing a mask, they don't let them in. Uh, I'm, I'm glad to hear you haven't dealt with, with some of the more extreme behaviors that we've heard about the media and at this point I mean, it's very hard for somebody outside you know somebody like myself to actually know i mean if it you know these cases where health providers are being attacked or spit on um how representative are those you, you know and it's i guess none of us can know and so they stick in our and they stick in our mind and, I, and i've worried about that in terms of the kind of work you all do that it, it might make you more reticent somehow 
but of course you're professional, so you're going to do what you're going to do. But it, it's just adds more tension to an already stressful situation, I guess. But we'll talk about that more. I want to, um, I want to talk about your curriculum first, because I'm really, really curious to know how you, how things were modified. Like, how did you actually continue your medical training um, once the pandemic broke out? What kind of modifications were necessary? Uh, Mayank, let me start with you on that and then Mina, your input. Yeah, so when the pandemic first hit, it was in the middle of our first year of medical school and our curriculum is one year basically just studying from the books and then the next three years in the hospital every day. And so we were kind of halfway to three quarters of the way done with our first year of medical school and everything went virtual. And so that particularly meant that in our last few units um, where we were supposed to learn how to do some physical exams, like the neurology physical exam, the muscular skeletal physical exam, those kinds of things we had to learn virtually. And so there wasn't really an expert next to us that could be like, okay, you're hitting this reflex at this right spot, or you should adjust it in this way. A lot of it was just learning on our own and not really being able to confirm if that's how we were supposed to do everything. Um, and as things were virtual, um, the first six months we had to go and we had to learn that way. And then in the beginning of our second year, that was after this first wave of the pandemic had ended. And so they gave us an extra few weeks at the beginning of our second year or we could come in in person and learn and like refine how to do the physical exams that we'd be prepared for the hospital. Um, and, and it was a very tough situation because no, we've never been in a pandemic before. And so to rapidly adjust and figure out a plan like that um, worked out for us um, in the end. Um, and I was really fortunate that we started already halfway, three quarters of the way through our year versus the incoming class below us. They had, all of their classes virtual. And so the issue with that is that they didn't really get a chance to get to know any of their classmates. They, you know, medical school is a tough time. And so they were a little bit more affected, I would say, than us, where all of our stuff started to go in person after this first year. Uh, that's the really interesting um, point you're making there that you think that you're pointing to how important it was that you actually all knew each other. You had at least one semester in person before um, you had to go online. Mina, does that resonate with you? That Do you also see that as, as valuable or challenging to the students coming behind you that they didn't have that? Absolutely. I think there are a lot of challenges to having maybe not as a strong sense of community within the, the grades. Um, of course, the med school tries really hard to have different events, but um, when things are virtual, you don't have that same human connection for sure. We've had different events um, called M Home Olympics, where we were doing different sports um, and in a really big field outdoors, trying to get all the grades together to interact and get to know each other better. And that can definitely help be some stress. And when you know someone else is going through the same thing you are, it definitely helps for sure. Um, yeah. And on this point of modifications to the curriculum, anything else in your experience, Mina, that, that yeah. we should know about? Definitely. I think Mike did a really good job summarizing kind of all the events that took place. I guess I have a strong memory of being a first year, and um, one thing we'll talk about more later is living in a community with uh, 24 other medical students in a big house. Um, I remember the second year students coming home and just not knowing what to do because 
med school was just canceled. Clinical year was just canceled and they didn't know how for how long. So some people went home to quarantine, spend time with their family. Some people just kind of sat around and thought, well, I signed up for this surgery rotation. It's not going to happen. So it definitely ruined a lot of people's plans because some people, that was their only opportunity to do a rotation in surgery or pediatrics or any of the core rotations. And so that time was taken away from them. Then they have to make up time or the rotation some other time to figure out, oh, is pediatrics the right specialty for me? Um, but I guess they're shortened some rotations for other people too. Um, I guess fortunate for people who maybe weren't interested in going to that specific specialty. So you alluded to the fact of your living situation and it's once in a while on COVID calls, I, I get two guests together who are in the same frame and I, and I love it because in COVID, in COVID times, I mean, first of all, it just shows the rapport between you and, and, but also in COVID times, we're so used to all of us being alone in our own little boxes, but that's not been your living experience there. Has it been? Tell us what it's, what your situation, I mean, start, please tell us, you know, to start what it's like there. What, how do you live? Yeah, I feel for, so fortunate to be living in the situation. And I think that's the major reason why I don't feel like COVID has too uh, dramatically changed my medical school experience because I get that sense of community from this house. Um, and it, I like to say my neighbors are my built-in friends. So I have 25 built-in friends. Um, <laughs> and um, we have first through fourth years living together. So we can always ask upperclassmen for advice. So that's been really, really wonderful. Um, with communal living though, there's always um, pluses and minuses. So the pluses I've mentioned already, the minuses are, you know, we're medical students, usually pretty type A, I would say, to get this far in our education. People have very strong opinions about how to run a house. Um, and I have felt really fortunate. We are kind of the, um, of our, like, our own living situation. We have a chef um, for us uh, who cooks lunch and dinner five days a week. Um, and we pay him, and we we hire different staff members to help um, fix the house. And so learning about that and meeting with a financial advisor to figure out, okay, how much do we need to save? So it's been, of course, there are arguments on, like, how to spend the money and things like that. But um, it's been a really great learning experience for sure. So, Mayank, is this how all the medical students live there at Michigan in these sort of communal arrangements, or is this a special sort of situation? Yeah, so this is a special house that they only have at um, the University of Michigan, at least to my knowledge, in all of the Michigan schools. There's a few other medical schools across the country that do have a house as well. Um, but essentially, it was an application to join this house. Uh, you get selected in your first year of medical school. And once you're in, you can decide if you want to stay with it for as many years as you want, or you can leave if you would like. But the perks of the living here, as Mina said, and to echo what she said, is just to have people who have gone through the curriculum before you, who can support you, give you advice, give you recommendations for what to do in the future. And then also, it just is in a really great location uh, in Ann Arbor. It's just a five minute walk to the hospital. And so, um, you know, we don't really need to have a car here as often. There's a lot of perks of being able to get to the hospital as well. So, I mean, just to, to make sure I'm clear about this, because I mean, we all, most of us went through lockdown period in the spring of 2020. So when you all went through that, I mean, were you, 
you're doing the same thing, but you were locked down with 26 people. Yeah, exactly. So that was one of the challenges that we had living in the um, community environment here is that and most people in the households had three or four people and they were isolating themselves as well. And we had a group of 26 people, several of us from out of state or who have unstable living situations who really had nowhere else to go. And so we had a lot of challenging conversations right when COVID first mm -hmm. happened because no one knew how quickly this virus was going to spread. No one knew how how um, scary it was going to be and how much restrictions we should have. Um, and so, you know, there were questions about, should we have any guests come over? Right. Should we have like significant others be able to visit? Um, or do we all need to go home to our own places for the pandemic? And so we just had those conversations for several months. And so for the first few months of the pandemic, we ended up deciding that people who could go home, we would support them and give them some financial incentive to go home. And so we were around half capacity for most of the pandemic. I was one what of the uh, remainder, remaining survivors, I like to say, of the people staying in the house during the pandemic. Lang was actually one of the people who left pretty early on. Um, but it did get pretty lonely. Um, yeah, I think at one point, maybe there, maybe there was like four or five of us left in the house at I one see. time. Okay, so you started with the full number, and then over time, as people were able to go home, they did. What a remarkable, uh, I mean, I just want to put a pin in that for, for screenwriters out there. Um, this is a film that needs to be made. Um, <laughs> and, I, and, and so, and then also the, re, the return of people must have been really joyful. It was, yeah. I was not seeing people for so many months because I guess this is a community and also we call each other family too because we're med school can be a kind of traumatic experience <laughs> for some people most of us um just because it's so stressful but i think trauma really brings you closer <laughs> so um sure. yeah just want to remind everyone that you're listening to COVID Calls, and today I'm talking to two medical students at the University of Michigan, uh, Mayak Jairam and Mina Weibrecht, about their experiences as medical students throughout this pandemic. So let's um, continue on to talk a little bit about the experience of treatment. We talked about your curriculum a little bit and how you lived. So let's, let's pick up, and, and Mina, let me start with you. Um, ways that patient treatment were modified um, in your own experience and, you know, I've talked with other guests on COVID calls about some of this using telehealth, um, for example. Um, but I'd be curious to know, you know, from your vantage point, what were, what were the changes that mattered and, and how did that also impact your own sort of training as a doctor? Mm -hmm. um, the most profound change uh, is definitely virtual appointments. Of course, we've all heard of telehealth, but I think virtual appointments weren't really a thing um, in most of Michigan medicine. And I've, I'm pretty confident to say I probably wouldn't have experienced any virtual appointments if it weren't for COVID. It seemed like overnight, uh, insurance companies started covering those appointments, which was really, really fortunate. And um, so I've had a few experiences with different providers I've worked with um, doing 
kind of mixture of virtual and in-person appointments. And I've had appointments who went, um, virtual appointments that went very, very efficiently. I actually really liked it. Um, sometimes, because you, you don't have to do a physical exam during virtual appointments, or at least it's limited um, and more challenging for sure. But a lot of patients I was actually seeing in the primary care setting were coming in or coming in virtually for um, refill on their ADHD medications, uh, such as Ritalin. And so I did see a common theme of like what people were coming in with. Um, and it was pretty efficient if people are able to log in and you, you chat think about how things are going. It was actually more efficient than in person because you don't have to wait for your vitals to be taken, blood pressure, temperature, things like that, and then you have to room them, and then you have to clean the room afterwards, things like that. It really saves um, time for sure. But oftentimes technology doesn't work for all patients um, very commonly, especially for um, people who aren't familiar with technology. Um, we can spend 10, 15, 20 minutes trying to troubleshoot. Um, and a lot of providers are really pressed for time. You only have 20 minute slots um, to talk to people and document things like that. So that can pose some challenges for sure to providers. I can only imagine if you have 20 minutes allotted or 20 at most maybe for somebody and 15 minutes is trying to get the Zoom to work. That's super frustrating. Mayak, your own impressions of how treatment has changed. Yeah, I think that at first there was a, a pretty big adjustment, um, very similar to what Mina was saying, just going telehealth. But something that I thought that was really interesting was that for several different specialties, there had already been a plan in place to transition to, to telehealth in the next few years. The timeline kind mm. of got accelerated. But for something, for example, like psychiatry, um, I had a very extensive conversation with one of my attendings who said that they were already attempting to facilitate an, a way to have these meetings and these appointments virtually. It would save the patient a lot of time and money having to come into the hospital and wait, um, and they could just show up to their appointment on time. And a lot of times things can be streamlined that way where the patient doesn't always need a physical exam to see what's going on. Um, a lot of times you can just discuss the health conditions over the phone and then have them come in for more urgent things. And so I think one of the interesting outcomes of this pandemic was accelerating some of that virtual care that we're starting to see and experience um, right now. I mean, that's really fascinating because if this is a change that becomes a more central feature of the United States and other places probably as well, health system, um, particularly in, in countries, um, I mean, the United States, people who are not familiar with the U.S. health system may not realize that it's a wealthy country, but it does not have equitability of care across the United States. So now you have the opportunity to pro maybe provide care um, in ways you couldn't before. And that's happening literally unfolding while you're in, the, in your medical training. I mean, I, I don't, it seems, I mean, exciting isn't the right word, but it's quite something to be there in the midst of a change that will probably uh, may affect the rest of your careers. I mean, do you think this is my, do you think this is going to be a more permanent shift? Yeah, it sounds like it's going to be a permanent shift because it seems to be working so far. Um, mm. People are still receiving high quality care. And a lot of times, for example, when I was in my OB-GYN rotation, um, we would talk with the patient and ask if they wanted to come in for every appointment in person, if they wanted to have a combination of virtual and in-person visits. And many patients actually preferred to have a, com or a combination of virtual and inpatient visits. And so it seems like this is a change that's definitely going to be permanent and is going to be 
staying for several more years. The one big complication with this that, um, you know, I didn't really think about till I was in the hospital setting was that a lot of times you have to verify that the patient is in your specific state. Because if the patient is doing their appointment in like California and you're in Michigan, you may not be licensed to care mm-hmm. in California. And so there's a whole slew of additional issues that arise with this telehealth system as well. Oh, I hadn't thought of that thought of that either. But something we touched on a little bit earlier, I'd like to hear more about, Mina, is the the way that this isolation impacted both the doctor-patient relationship and then what you're able to observe on how it how it affected patients. I mean, we've seen so many heartbreaking stories from elder care facilities of you know, loved ones, spouses coming to windows, you know, holding up photos. And of course, the the story too often heard of sort of deathbed discussions on, you know, held with FaceTime and, and things like that. I mean, those are the most dramatic instances. But then I guess there's also just the sort of day-to-day reliance that you generally have on family for information. And all of a sudden, they're not there on the floor. What has that been like? Yeah. I have so many instances I can think of right now, but there's one story coming to mind. Um, This was during my internal medicine rotation at the Veterans Hospital nearby. Um, So U of N students usually get to rotate there, um, or it's a requirement for everyone to do so. And um, I was taking care of a gentleman with um, acute on chronic congestive heart failure. And he had a lot of fluid in his legs and his abdomen, which is a pretty common occurrence for heart failure. So we were uh, diuresing him, which means trying to get all the extra fluid off of him because it's really hard on the kidneys and the heart. Um, Or the fluid is hard on the heart, but then taking off the fluid, it can be hard on your kidneys. So it's kind kind of a procedure or not a procedure, but a process that is only done inpatient. And it can often take sometimes weeks. Um, sometimes people don't respond to the medications to get the fluid off. Um, so you have to keep making adjustments. And it's a really, it's a nuisance for patients to have to run to the restroom uh, every few hours, or not every few hours, but every few minutes um, for several hours at a time. But this gentleman, that's what he was going through. And um and I guess at the COVID guest policy in the hospital at that point was um, you could only have one family member visit for one to two hours at a time. Um, and I think being sick in the hospital is already a very, very lonely thing. You already feel so helpless. And um, so he only got that one to two hours. And every day he would tell me, I feel like I'm in a prison cell. I would rather go back to Vietnam and um and serve than be in this jail cell. And I was, I didn't really know how to respond to that. And I, I saw him every day for three weeks because um, that's how long it took to get the fluid off. Um, And every day he demanded to leave actually to go home, but it wasn't safe for his kidneys or his heart to do so. And every day I would call his wife and say, um, saying he wants to leave again and she would have to call him or come in and kind of settle him down and then he would be okay again to stay. But the next day, the whole process would start over. And he actually had episodes of delirium, um, which is like fluctuating mentation. So um, sometimes he'd be super agitated, but then after a few minutes later, he'd be kind of slower to respond or really absent-minded, not listening, it seems like. 
And delirium is actually very common in um, geriatric populations specifically. Sometimes um, 50 to 56 percent of geriatric patients can experience delirium in the hospital. So it's so important for family members to help orient those patients where they are, calm them down, because oftentimes it can be very confused. They'll flip their nights and days. They won't sleep at night. And they'll ask, oh, where am I? They'll get the year wrong, things like that. And it's just so heartbreaking to see that. Um, so being removed from the family, being disoriented that way definitely worsens delirium for a lot of patients. Mayak, have you seen similar examples? I mean, that's a, a really powerful story of, of that, that necessity. As you said, his wife had to be, she still had to be present, but then you had to broker that on, on the phone and then having her, her come. Mike, did you see anything like that in your experience? Yeah, I've seen many, many times very similar things to what Mina was just talking about. And it is really tough and heartbreaking to see those things happen in the hospital. Um, I also saw some things that were sort of on the other side of the spectrum where um, patients, because they wanted to stay home with their loved ones and because there was fear about COVID in general, they wouldn't come into the hospital for several months after something very serious had happened. And so to kind of use Mina's heart failure example, you know, patients would, would wait and they'd have fluid just filling up their bodies and they would wait so long to come into the hospital because of the fear of getting COVID. And for that reason, the treatment was usually much longer and it would, it would be a lot harder to, to care for them. And even the worst was to have some situations where individuals would have, you know, um, heart attacks or they'd have strokes, but they wouldn't come into the hospital because they were afraid of, of COVID. And that's really heartbreaking to see because the earlier you get in and the faster we can respond, the better we can have as a good outcome for you. And so that was also a really, really challenging thing to see through this pandemic. I just want to remind everyone you're listening to COVID Calls. We're talking about medical education in the time of a pandemic with Mina Weibrecht and Mayank Jayaram. Um, I want to, you know, follow up a, a little bit more about the ways that some of your interactions with patients may be changing in the middle of a pandemic because of just the amount of information people need to gather. I mean, I think about my own sort of last visit just in the in the outpatient, you know, just in the doctor's office, a physical. And uh, my doctor uh, at that time was living in New Jersey. And he's he's a guy who likes to talk a lot. So it worked well. I like to talk a lot. And he made a lot of time. So we had a lot of good chats. Great. Um, I had a lot of questions about vaccines, about pandemic, about COVID. And he answered all those. But um, I wonder if you've seen that, too. I mean, people coming in, particularly they're coming in for one thing, but then what they really want to talk to you about is the vaccine. Uh, has that, I, I think that must be playing out. Mina, tell us about that. Yeah. Um, I remember rotating on cardiology as part of internal medicine. We actually rotated with the same physician. It was kind of funny. Um, and he would spend basically every appointment out of the entire day I was with him explaining the vaccine to patients because, um, COVID affects the whole body. If you have heart failure or any underlying heart issues, um, you can be more predisposed to having a really negative outcome. Or um, So, yeah, he would spend a lot of time um, with each patient. Sometimes he would tell me to go, go ahead and see the other patient because he wasn't done counseling about the vaccination. Um, yeah, a lot of time is definitely spent 
dispelling myths, things we see in the media, um, I guess on the web, on, on the computer, just about um, yeah, different ideas about what the vaccine is, whether or not we should get it and when. What about within the community of medical students, Mayank? Is it a vaccine mandate there for medical students? And, and have there been some lively conversations or is it something that's just everyone went and got it and, and there was no, um, no concern about it among the students? Yeah, I would say it's more so the latter. Um, you know, the school mandated that every student get a vaccine. And so most of the students are, basically all the students in our class are vaccinated at this point. Um, if there were people that weren't getting vaccinated, they may have been like, they may have been silent about it or they may, may have been waiting um, a little bit longer. Um, but most of our class, they kind of just jumped on board pretty early on to get the vaccine. And we were very fortunate in that since we were already engaged in the healthcare setting, we, we had the opportunity to get it early. and so. Um, a lot of us just got the vaccine um, very soon. Yeah, and I think but, a lot of med students, sorry. No, go um, ahead. Are pretty proactive about telling um, kind of their, who people they've been in contact with if they have been exposed to COVID. So I feel like at least within our um, living and our immediate circle, everyone's been pretty proactive about protecting each other and taking precautions to mask up or self-quarantine if they feel like they've been exposed and also getting tested. Well, I'm glad you mentioned those other things. So with vaccines, one thing, but then before the vaccine was available, um, was it on each individual student to, to decide when to be tested or was there a sort of regular testing um, regime that you had to submit to? And I presume mask wearing was mandatory, but, but maybe not. So tell us a little bit about these non-vaccine interventions and how you navigated those. Mina, let me start with you on that. Mm -hmm. I think for the first maybe six months, we didn't have any, um, it was not mandatory to get tested, but eventually I think the university as a whole started mandating uh, weekly testing, I believe, if you went into the hospital. So we would, um, students would go spit in a tube um, and whatever. I would saliva test, okay. Yes, yes. Um, I think, yeah, that was the only one that was actually um, required, even for undergrad students as well. Um, but in the hospital, you're always required to wear a mask over your nose and mouth. And of course, I don't think people are the best at um, enforcing that rule, but generally we don't have issues. Within patient rooms, though, inpatient, patients don't usually wear a mask. Mm. Um, and I don't know why that is, but it seems like an unspoken culture that just happens. Um, I guess there's this feeling that the patient, that that's their own room and it's their own space, so they don't wear a mask. M majority of them don't, some do. That's so interesting, because you don't want that necessarily, but at the same time, you want them to feel comfortable in the ha their own sort of habitation where they are in that stressful mm -hmm. time. But, uh, just going a little further with the mask issue, Mayank, um, mm -hmm. communicating with patients um, where the physician is wearing a mask, it's, we might think it's kind of a subtle change, but I know, again, just coming back to my own uh, personal experience, I found it very, very different. Um, you know, and I don't have a hearing disability, but if I did, I, I think that might be, that might pose a problem. What has that been like? Yeah. So one of the really interesting things about um, the hospital is that most of the patients are a little bit older. And so by that time, they're starting to have a little bit of a struggle with hearing. And so 
with masks, when you're talking, you're already a little bit muffled. Even without a mask, you sometimes have to speak very loudly for the patient to be able to hear what's going on. And so adding the mask in on both sides was definitely a tough complication of everything. And then in addition to that, people oftentimes can listen or hear by reading lips. And so with masks covering your, your mouth as well, it was hard to sometimes communicate to these patients or you'd have to repeat things a few more times for them to be able to listen. And there was a pretty cool adaptation that came out of it. Um, for a little bit in the hospital, they would have these masks that had a cutout just around your mouth so that people who were deaf or people who were hard of hearing could actually read your lips um, and understand what you were trying to say. Um, and so that was one of the interesting results of this whole situation. That's interesting. So it's a, it's a cutout with a plastic, you know, insert in there. The mask tech, we're going to need to uh, have a lot of research on the variability of mask technology throughout this time. I mean, everything from the face shields, but also this modification of masks. Did you use one like that? I did use one like that mm -hmm. um, only a couple times during the year. Um, and it was definitely very interesting. It felt very similar to the normal surgical mask that we wear. Um, but it, it definitely felt different to be able to like see someone else wearing the mask and being able to see just their mouth, but nothing else as well. We're almost up on time in this COVID calls discussion, but I have a couple of questions left. Mina, you mentioned um, your writing and your dance. I wonder if you could tell us you actually participated in choreography and a dance production throughout this whole time period somehow. Again, I have no idea how you found time to do that. Tell us about it. Yeah, so the medical uh, school usually puts on a dance show twice a year called Biorhythms, and it's a collaboration of a lot of students and a lot of different types of dances and they they send out a mass email saying oh would anyone like to be a choreographer and actually one of my housemates uh, who's who loves bachata as much as I do maybe even more um, she asked if I wanted to be a co-choreographer so it just kind of happened um, and of course med school is pretty busy but there's always time for something that you really care about one or two things I would say aside from um, doing homework and or going in and uh, working in the hospital. But um, we had, I think maybe about 15 um, people in the group and all of our practices were outside. They were actually in Carytown, which is a place that has a farmer's market every weekend, um, this cute little place. Um, and actually when we filmed the performance, there were daffodils, so it was really, really beautiful. But I'm really proud to say we had a 0% dropout rate. Everyone was really dedicated and everyone had something to say about how they imagined the final production video to be. And it just felt so nice that it was a group of us medical students um, just doing something outside of medicine, out of, outside of studying and being able to relax, take a deep breath and also do something great, movement for the body and just um, take care of ourselves. A final question for both of you, and and um, maybe it's an unanswerable question, but I'll ask I'll ask anyway because I'm curious. Uh, my uncle, let me ask you first. Knowing everything you know now uh, about this pandemic, would you choose again to be in medical school at this time? Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting question. I think personally for me, given the timing of when our pandemic, when the pandemic hit and where we were in our medical education, 
I would probably continue the same that I have right now. Um, because we had the perks of getting to know our class at the beginning of mm. the at first year of medical school, getting to have some support, getting to know people, uh, kind of getting our feet wet before going into the deep end. Um, and then we really were only online and virtual for two or three months. That was the only significant impact to our medical education. And really since then we've been in the hospital in person for most of the time. So we didn't have that much of a negative impact from the COVID um, pandemic. But that being said, you know, if I had started a year or, or earlier or later, I probably would have wanted to at least wait a little bit before starting medical school because, um, you know, starting medical school itself without getting a chance to know your classmates is, is a challenge, but also being in the middle of your clinical rotations and then having to stop all of a sudden is also another challenge. And so mm. I think kind of depending on where you are in medical school would make a really big big impact on that. But I think our school has done a really stellar job in adjusting to everything and, and trying to make sure that we um, are able to learn as well and not have too much of a change to our education. Mina, same question to you. Yeah, I agree with Mayank. Um, I'm really fortunate that I don't have any underlying health issues. So I think I'm at a kind of normal risk factor for outcomes of getting COVID. Um, so I don't feel like I'm afraid for my life when I encounter hundreds of patients um, a day, a week, however long. Um, and I don't feel like our curriculum has been adversely affected. I did mention the few weeks of transition to online classes. And I was a lecture goer. We have a class of about 170 people. And only about 20 people would actually go to in-person lectures even before the pandemic. Um, so that impacted me for sure because um, I had to adjust to video learning. But overall, you know, it was it was an okay adjustment. There are some perks um, to being able to speed up videos and get, get content faster that way. But um, yeah, just being ready for change and being flexible, I think that's very important. And fortunately, it's worked out pretty well for our class, I would say. You've been listening to COVID Calls, and you can usually catch COVID Calls live most weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Today, just a phenomenal discussion uh, with Mina Weibrecht and Mayank Jairam. And I, I want to also give a shout out to one of my past COVID Calls guests, Sam Shotland, for helping to make this conversation happen. Thanks for sharing what it's been like in this time. I hope we can get you back um, you know, at an interval maybe of a few months to see how, how things are going. And um, just thank, for, thank you for everything you're doing. Thanks for being on COVID Calls today. Thank you, Scott. Thank you so much for having us. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls. Mm -hmm.